Thank you for listening to our podcast, produced by the International Journal of Stroke. To help us spread the word, please be sure to share with your colleagues, to share on Twitter, and if you're feeling particularly energised, we'd love it if you would write a review. This helps others to find us. Mood problems are common after stroke. With reported rates of depression, apathy and distress significantly higher than in the general population. In fact, anxiety is common in the general population also, but its presence in stroke patients has been relatively under-recognised both in clinical and research settings. More recent researchers argued for the importance of subtypes of anxiety, for example, panic disorder, specific or simple phobias, etc., for understanding its impact and for developing and delivering suitable interventions or adapting those shown to be effective in the general adult population. I'm Carmen Leif Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke, and I spoke to Professor Peter Knapp from the Department of Health Sciences, University of York in the UK. He's also the submitting author for the article Frequency of Anxiety After Stroke, an updated systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies. And this article has recently been published in the International Journal of Stroke. My name is Peter Knapp. I'm reader in health sciences at the Department of Health Sciences, University of York. So how many patients suffer from anxiety post-stroke? Well, what we showed in this updated systematic review is the, well, actually the rate that was identified depends on the method that's been used. But if you, if, if, if the identification method is a, a clinical interview, then on average, 18.7%, so about one in five patients suffer from anxiety. And if rating scales are used, so pencil and paper measures, um, asking people of how they you know, about their symptoms, then the rate is 24.2%, so about one in four patients. So why do people suffer from post-stroke, from anxiety post-stroke, and others don't? Uh, well, we don't fully understand that. Actually, this systematic review didn't look at the causes and so on. But what we know from uh, information about anxiety in other patient groups and also um, other uh, mental health outcomes in stroke patients is there are a number of reasons for that. So, you know, the stroke can be a really catastrophic event for, uh, for, for many patients. And even for those who make a good physical recovery, the, you know, it's a shock and something that... Um, is, I suppose, destabilizing and, um, uh, you know, it really threatens them, their mental health. And so there's, there's, there's something about the, the, the provocation of the stroke event. And then we think there are other things. So it's likely that patients who've had what we know from depression after stroke, that patients who've had previous depression uh, earlier in their life are predisposed, you know, predisposed to have a higher risk of getting depression after stroke. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case with anxiety. We don't know that uh, yet. And, and also there, there are the factors that um, also affect the, the likelihood of, uh, of anxiety, such as the support they receive from close relatives, from other services, the therapeutic interventions of healthcare services. Those can have an impact on the, on the prevalence of, of, of anxiety after stroke. So there are a number of reasons uh, why, why it would happen. But, you know, I think fundamentally because stroke is a really unpleasant and threatening thing to happen to patients. So I guess that leads us into what a clinical diagnosis looks like. 
And in your paper, you identified a series of scales that you included within the review. Could you explain those to us, please? What we found in the review is that um, studies, well, 97 studies in the, in the review, is that 18 of those studies had used clinical interview to diagnose anxiety after stroke, but the vast majority, um, the other uh, almost 80 studies, had used a rating scale, and there have been a whole range of scales that have been used. But some of them are peculiar to anxiety, and others are more generic. So they're scales that look at sort of generic psychological distress and have, have anxiety an anxiety diagnosis as a subset of the, of the questions that are asked. Um, and those scales are sometimes used actually as uh, sort of screening measures. So that, for example, the general health questionnaire is um, a scale that has, that has various versions, but the version that's often used is 28 items, so 28 questions. And it's used to try and identify the, the presence of mental health problems in uh, patients with a physical health uh, problem. So it's, it's not a, a diagnostic measure, it's a, essentially it's a screening measure, but you can convert some of the items into, you know, people score above a certain threshold is a strong indication that they have, you know, a certain type of mental health problem. Uh, going into subtypes, what's an anxiety subtype and what impact do they have? Um, well, what we found in this study, in, in, the, in the systematic reviews, is, is there are um, a small portion of the studies had looked at anxiety subtypes and that's something one of the reasons why we wanted to update this review is that, that in the first version of the review in which we had 44 studies only a small number of the studies had looked at anxiety subtypes and we think this is really important um, we wanted to update the review to try and bring in more studies to see whether there was more information on the subtypes and there was but there's still relatively uh, small amounts of data so for example uh, examples are the subtypes that are identified in the review, agoraphobia, uh, social phobia, which is something that's, um, although it's infrequent, it can be really having a significant impact on patients, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and then phobias more generally or specific phobias. So uh, there are times, for example, well, social phobia, for example, where people um, really, uh, it can have a really isolating effect on people. People become very anxious about social situations, whether that's one-on-one -on -one situations or more generally. So uh, anecdotally, for example, what you, what you hear sometimes from stroke patients, people feeling um, embarrassed about the, the, the way that the disability has left them, feeling that they're going to be laughed at or mocked or humiliated in some way in social situations. So they, and, and there may be no uh, uh, reason for them to feel like that. No, no it's not, a, it's unjustified. Um, reaction, or it might, they might be extrapolating from one situation to all social situations. So, for example, a social phobia can be can have a really significant impact on the the life the life that people choose to leave uh, lead after they've had a stroke. So, those are some of the examples of the subtypes. And what we found in the review is that in the studies that had measured them, you know, the the, the, the prevalence of those subtypes is quite low. So. Um, uh, between about two and eight percent, but it has a really significant, well, potentially has a really significant impact on the lives of the people who who, who are experiencing it. And what were some of the weaknesses of the review that you've done? I think, well, actually, I think the review, okay, I, and I think it's a strong systematic review. So if you look at the the methods of, you know, the the factors that determine whether a systematic review is likely to have eliminated bias. 
you know, I think we included uh, many of those factors in, in the conduct of the review. So we looked at multiple databases. Um, we translated studies that weren't reported in English to see whether they could be included in the review. We did dual independent sifting, decision making on whether to include studies in the review and dual independent data extraction and so on. So, um, you know, we've done a number of things in the conduct of the systematic review, which I think should reassure readers that actually this has been done well and we have, as far as possible, captured as much of the data as is available on anxiety after stroke. So that's, so in terms of the process of the review, I think this is strong. Um, I, I think in terms of, you know, a systematic review in some ways is only as strong as the primary studies that make it up. And so we have a, we have a lot of data here now. We have almost 100 uh, studies. Um, well, one thing I've already talked about is the difference in rates between studies that have used clinical interview and rating scales. You know, that's, that's uh, statistically significant and quite a meaningful difference. There you have rates of 19% and 24%. You know, it suggests that there's some... There's something systematic, actually. Fewer people are diagnosed with anxiety when you use a clinical interview. And of course, that's, you know, it's much more labor intensive and like costly, costly methods. I think, you know, a relative weakness of the evidence base in this area is that there are still quite a small number of studies that have used clinical interview. Um, and then a second weakness is, is the relative small number of studies that have looked at subtypes. And that's something we included in the review is we need, need more evidence on that. I think. Um, the Cochrane review that we did, which published separately, looking at interventions after stroke, has shown there's hardly any trial evidence on interventions to treat patients with anxiety problems after stroke. And, um, and that's a weakness in the area. And I th but I think in really to understand the interventions that are needed, we need to know more about the types of anxiety that people are suffering after stroke and the impact it has on their lives. And then, you know, interventions can be... Uh, developed or tailored to adapt to the particular patient need in this group. Why are there so few studies that actually have focused on anxiety or sorry, anxiety interventions? Is it because it's new, of new interest to strokeologists or is it because it's, it's lacked funding or what's the reason behind it? Um, I don't know. Actually, I don't know about the funding question. I, I, I mean, it may be the case. I mean, I, I, I don't really feel... I mean, internationally, I don't, I'm not sure that I have, you know, I, I, I don't really know. I can answer that question. I'm not sure about the funding priorities around the world. I think historically there's been a concentration on depression after stroke. So there's been an awareness probably for the last 30 years. People have started reporting, um, uh, you know, reporting on the, on the, on the, on the, on the frequency of, the, of depression after stroke and the impact that that has. And I think, you know, and I think that was justified. Um, and, and that has that interest has followed through into clinical guidelines. So clinical guidelines, uh, for example, UK clinical guidelines have always had something on depression after stroke and the need to, uh, uh, you know, to, to screen for it and to treat it when it's found. Um, I think anxiety. I, I, actually, I don't. I, I, I think it's partly because of the concentration of depression that, that anxiety has to some extent been ignored or under-recognized. So I think it's been under-recognized both in research terms and clinically um, that it can have a really devastating effect. I think sometimes, um, and actually I, I have no data to, to back this up, but I have a, uh, you know, anecdotally, and I have a suspicion that often anxiety is really only manifest when people go home. 
um, particularly in sorts of social phobias and acrophobia and panic disorder. Yeah, sure. you know, I think um, when people are still uh, inpatients, they're perhaps protected from the effects of the anxiety. And it's, you know, and, and so I wonder whether an under, the under-recognition is because um, it really manifests in patients when they're less visible to stroke services. And that might be a reason. Um, but, uh, but you know, the, what, we can sh- what we've shown in this review and the first of the systematic reviews published in 2013 is that it's a really common problem and can have a really big impact on people's lives. Um, at the moment, you know, the, the drug treatment, so, so antidepressants would often be given for people with anxiety disorder. So in some ways, the pharmaceutical treatments that they're given to people with anxiety are the same as those or the same type of intervention as given for people with depression. Um, psychologically, talking therapies, there'd be a very different approach here. Um, but there's a real need for the development of an evidence base to treat this common and really important problem. And you hit on something there that I think is a good question as well. Do anxiety and depression present comorbidly? Like, are they present together? Um, I, yes, they do. And actually, well, we didn't look at that in this review. And I think that's that's a gap in the literature. I think, you know, the, I think the evidence is there. If somebody wants to do that review, it would be very useful. I think I think they, they, they do that. Um, I think there's some evidence from the work on depression after stroke about comorbid, comorbid, comorbid anxiety after stroke. And, um, and we know from other patient groups that these two things uh, go together and often are kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 well, it becomes really, really difficult for patients and, that, and those two disorders um, kind of reinforce each other. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's, we don't have direct evidence from that in this review, but, uh, but, but, but I, uh, you know, I would suspect that that's the case and that it's a job that he's doing. You've been listening to a podcast interview with Carmen Leif Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke and Professor Peter Knapp from the Department of Health Sciences, University of York in the UK, submitting author for the article Frequency of Anxiety After Stroke, an updated systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies. The International Journal of Stroke is the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organization. Please consider becoming a member. And thank you for listening to our podcast produced by IJS and the WSO. To help us spread the word, can you please share this podcast with your colleagues and on Twitter or Facebook or any other social media? And if you're feeling particularly energized, We'd especially love it if you would write a review. This helps others to find us.